This is CISO to CISO, a live podcast focusing on information security, leadership, innovation, and more. Brought to you by Altitude Networks, data security for the cloud. Welcome, everyone. Uh, This is another edition of CISO to CISO webcast. I'm your host, Michael Coates. I am the co-founder and CEO of Altitude Networks, the previous CISO of Twitter, hence my ability to be here in a CISO capacity. And super excited today to have uh, Andy Steingrubel with us. He is the CSO of Pinterest. He's been at uh, PayPal previously for over a decade, if I'm doing my math correctly. Um, A deep background in Unix, from what I can tell, and just super excited to uh, talk with you today. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Yeah, happy to be here. Great. Um, And as we dive in very quickly, this podcast webcast is brought to you from Altitude Networks. We are solving data security in cloud collaboration platforms uh, like G Suite, Box, etc. So if that is a challenge you are facing, check us out at altitudenetworks.com. With that, let's dive in. So Andy, um, I'm always curious to hear the journey that a CISO or CSO takes. It is a unique role that we end up in. Um, And what I found is the path that people get there is always different and varied. So talk about your path. Did you always want to be head of security? um, Or did you just find yourself there one day, handed the baton as someone ran out the door? Yeah, you know, it reminds me that there was a monster.com commercial once they had the, the little kids and they're interviewing them. And like, when I grow up, I want to be a comptroller or a, or something. No, I, I didn't always want to be a, want to be a CISO or a security person. You know, I, I started doing computing stuff when I was, I don't know, nine. So I learned to, to program when I was nine on a, on a TRS-80. Um, and my dad, my dad worked in, in computing and, and so on. But, uh, you know, I went to school for, first engineering and then physics and then turns out I'm not very good at either of those uh, and ended up uh, getting a degree in philosophy uh, but you know I think you you find out a lot about yourself on on not how you say you want to spend your time but on how you actually find yourself spending your time uh, and so I found I found that I was spending all my time uh, taking care of the Unix systems uh, in the in the lab uh, where I worked at, at school uh, turned that into a full-time job uh, and I tell people that like being a Unix admin at a university, especially back in the 90s, like half to two thirds of the job was security uh, and the insiders were the threats. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, your, your you know, fellow students or, or recently fellow students were the people who were trying to cause trouble. Get, you know, back when quotas and limited mm-hmm. disk space and things like that were a, were a concern. So you, you spent a lot of your time uh, on security, hardening systems, uh, and so on. I had a, a great mentor, a guy named Bob Bartlett, um, who taught me just tons about Unix, Unix security, how to automate things. Um, and so on, even then, there was more than you could do manually. So automation was a was a big thing. And I did that for a couple of years at a university, and then at a pharmaceutical, which was a very different environment. Um, and then took a job full-time as a security head at a startup because uh, I found that I was spending even more of my time uh, on security stuff. So I did that for a couple of years uh, and then and then ended up uh, moving uh, from Chicago out to the West Coast here and took the job at, at PayPal. I, uh, I moved back and forth between IC and manager roles a couple of different times in my in my career and was you know helped build the PayPal security team from like four people um, 
to up to you know when I left, I don't know, two hundred something. Um, oh. uh, like I didn't do all of that, obviously, but it was a it was quite a journey of going from a small team up to a really big one. Uh, and when I when I left PayPal, I knew the next job I wanted uh, was a CISO job. You're, you know, you there's times where you want to. You have ideas of what actually works and doesn't work, and you want a, mm -hmm. a chance to be responsible yeah. for them and get to try them. And so I knew that that was that was what I wanted my next job to be was to try and run a, a security program and be responsible for the whole thing. Um, I wanted to do it at a at a place that was uh, in the in a big growth phase and you know was an internet business. I think that's where my skills are. So you try to you try to match some of your skills and experience to things, and so. Uh, Pinterest came available, uh, and and it was a good match, I think. So, mm -hmm. it, it's fascinating the the origin of your dabbling in technology. Um, you know, working on the the home computer, so to speak, that was also my entry point. But also, as you mentioned, the university lab. Uh, I was in a similar position. I was the sysadmin of a, a lab in the psychology department. Uh, that's where I learned my initial security skills because. Mm -hmm. Um, possibly like you, like, well, this seems like an interesting field, but where exactly is that line where it's legal versus illegal? I don't really need to shortchange my college career by getting arrested. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny how things have changed in that world. Like, the, it used to be that when there was an incident, somebody broke into your computer, some people would break back into the, to the origin of the attack at the other university or something. And, and call that person on the phone and say, hey, by the way, uh, you've got somebody who's broken into your computer and they just broke into ours and here's how they did it. And if, and if you, hey, log in and go look in the temp directory and you'll see a directory called blah, blah, blah. And they, you know, now the CFA, uh, CFAA and others say that's a really bad idea. Uh, back in, I don't know, 93, I don't know, statute of limitations or something, but the, um, the back in 93, that was just how the world worked. You just helped everybody yeah. out. It was a big community and so on. The world's changed a little bit on that front, uh, but not entirely. We're still, a, I think, a pretty tight-knit group of, of security folks and so on who know each other. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, the, the community element is, is huge. Uh, I, I think as we tell other people, like sure, companies that we work at may be competing on various levels, but as security professionals, we're kind of all in it together, unified against this problem that's plenty big. So we might as well help each yeah. other while we try and tackle it. Yeah, you know, I tell people it's the, the old joke about like the, the bit, two hikers come across a bear in the woods and one bends down to tie his shoes and the, I think we all know the story, you know, hey, you're not gonna outrun the bear. You know, I don't have to outrun the bear, just you. But I find that in security, it's more often, it's more often not that case. And instead we're trying to like starve the, starve the predator. I think uh, Robert Hanson Arsnake has a cool, you know, cool anecdote about that involving prairie dogs. But the, you know, I think we're more often trying to, to just make sure that, that, uh, that the bad guys don't win because uh, it gives mm -hmm. them fuel for another day. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, speaking of bears, a bit of a segue, uh, each CISO to CISO webcast, we pick a virtual location to be uh, virtually at. Um, Andy, tell us a little bit about, about where we are today and why our shirts appear to match, even though we didn't coordinate this. Yeah, I mean, that was just luck, by the way. But the, uh, um, so we, we chose, uh, for folks who are in California, this won't be a surprise, but if, if you're not from California and you haven't been following along, there's been a lot of fires here. Uh, and one of the, or the oldest uh, state park in California uh, had a big fire that hasn't happened 
don't know, recorded memory, really 50, 60 plus years. Uh, so big base in Redwoods Park in the, in the Bay Area, it's a true gem. Uh, had fires come through, it burned down uh, the visitor center and a bunch of buildings, but luckily a lot of the great redwoods are still standing. They're pretty resistant. Uh, so we chose that as our, as our backdrop uh, for a place, you know, if I could be there today, not that this isn't fun, but if I could be just out hiking in the, in the redwoods, that'd be pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. So thinking about the, you know, the CISO role as you, uh, as, as you, uh, have it. There's so many different, you know, risks that we encounter. Uh, we think about changes in technology. Um, we think about different teams that are making decisions on their own, you know, many of which we don't have full authority to say, hey, you can't do that per se. They're in different parts of the organization. So we have to, you know, lead by influence to some degree. But there's a lot of different ways you can tackle that. What have you found is kind of a successful approach for you? And do you think that it's unique to the company or the industry that you're in, or maybe can work for all CISOs? Yeah, that's what I'm struck by. Like the more I learn, like how, how every company and situation sort of, re some stuff's replayable, a lot of skills are transferable, but the, the culture at each organization is different and how you solve problems is different. Pinterest is, is really great from a collaboration perspective. Um, so the, you know, I had a former boss, Michael Barrett once say that like, all I am is a teacher, like half my job is just educating people on things. It's, it's not using authority to go do stuff. It's sort of authority to convene a meeting and educate people about a risk. Um, and in a, in a place that, that takes it seriously. And that was one of my criteria for taking it, taking the job. So I'm, I'm pretty lucky that way. Um, but I work at a place that, that really cares about security. Um, and and so my, my job is, is often to, to see a problem uh, and get it pointed out to me or discover it myself, ask questions, uh, and then convene the right people to solve the, the problem. So half my job is just explaining to people that this thing is a problem, something could happen here. Uh, and, in a, and Pinterest is quite receptive. Like I can't, I can't remember a time, and it's been, it's coming up on two years where I've said, hey, this is a problem. And somebody said, oh, I disagree. We're like, okay, tell me more, and then let's figure out what we should do about it, and on what sort of time frame. And and so my, I, I view part of my job is as being the convener of the right set of people to solve a problem, and and helping vet the solution. But the the solution doesn't always, you know, it's pull the right people in that are smart on the on the various things, whether it's a product thing or an engineering thing, or you don't even know. You pull a group of people in, and you help them work through. Uh, solving a problem. And very frequently, the, the best solve doesn't come from the security person or, or sometimes even the engineer. We had a great, a great problem that came up, a product issue, and, and the best solution came from the product manager who owned that, who came with a really elegant solution that both solved the security problem and preserved a great user experience, which is, which is key. Like, I wouldn't have thought of that because my, my focus was, was mostly on the technical side of it and not the user experience piece of it. And, and product managers have a different lens that they, that they look at things with. And so it's, you know, pulling together the right and a diverse set of people who look at problems from different ways. That's, that's I think how you solve, how you solve problems. And sometimes that's just engineers, but other times it's, Hey, you need a, a lawyer or a, or a product uh, person or a design person or something like that to help, uh, to help look at one of those problems. It's, yeah, it's fascinating because 
you know, at the beginning of our careers in security, uh, many people think of excellence in security to be building the most bulletproof system possible, period, full stop. And as you mentioned, you know, as you rise up in the roles, you're not actually trying to build this completely impenetrable box. Of course, we want it to be secure. But, it, but just like you said, it's more about that education element and even bringing the people to the table. Um, and to some degree, as what I found, it's, it's even giving them enough knowledge so they can take uh, reasonable risks. Um, because if we get them in a spot where it's just so secure that nothing can go wrong, it's also probably not very usable, as you mentioned, to the, yeah. the UX perspective. Yeah, I mean, the, it's important to understand which security problems should really be solved by the security team and which mm -hmm. security problems are better solved as a, as a not a technical problem, but as a sort of a balancing of, of two, good, two competing sort of goods or interests. Think, think account security. Like the, you know, on the mm -hmm. one hand, you want to, your users and the company wants to stop attackers from getting into accounts, but you also want your users to get into their own accounts. And if you make it too hard, then, then nobody gets into any accounts and that's also not good. Um, you know, the, the regular users don't find the product usable, don't use it or don't want to use it or, or whatever. So there's this, those balancing things are, are things where you need, you know, not just security folks, but product managers, um, people who can do user testing and experimentation. It turns out a lot of these problems don't have, uh, you know, they have, uh, they don't have a priori solves to them. You can only figure them out through testing and through experimentation of what actually works. You can't come up with a, an engineered solution ahead of time until you try it out and see how people react to it. Yeah, the account security reminds me uh, you know, of a kind of classic realization where uh, as a security person, you may say, oh, well, you know, two-factor over SMS is academically, you know, insecure, therefore it cannot be used, period. Uh, we must force everyone to use a uh, app on their phone for their, their mm -hmm. token. Uh, and then you have a uh, product manager, someone say, well, we have a global audience and only 50% of our global audience even have <laughs> smartphones. And then suddenly, boom, mm -hmm. like, all right, this just all, you know, went out the window. And those kinds of views and realizations you have to have in the room to build any sort of usable and secure system. Yeah, the world's a much bigger place. I mean, it's why, you know, the, you, try to, you try to get people from various backgrounds from different parts of the world who've had different experiences and so on. Because the, you know, my, my own experience sitting here in, uh, in San Jose, California mm -hmm. is not indicative of the, of the whole world. So. Mm -hmm. Yep, despite the continued um, funding of food delivery services and uh, dry cleaning on demand, you know, building startups for Silicon Valley. But yes, we are not representative of the world for sure. Exactly. So. so, you know, another interesting element of security is, is how it spans both technologies, um, policy process, you know, almost how you engage with the company itself and the employees. But how, how do you think about balancing those elements? Um, you, can, you can imagine the, the stereotypical West Coast company is very open and everybody do whatever, just trust people. You've got the stereotypical bank where it's all rigid and locked down. And yeah. of course, those are stereotypes. But how do you think about that in building a company that can be a successful company and a secure and safe company? Yeah, I, you know, I tend to think of it, um, I, I mean, a minute ago we talked about 
you know, freedom and, and other things. But I, I, this is a case where I think what you do is you, you, you solve the things with automation and with rigid process that makes sense to, and you leave degrees of freedom for people to then innovate with a few things fixed in place. So, you know, the, like the certain problems really are fixable and they, and so think fishing in the internal, uh, in the internal context. Like I could, I could go and train everybody how to do that, or I can go and deploy Fido U2F. I mean, I was part of the, part of the group that championed Fido in the first place and, and my team, you know, I wasn't the one who did the work. I had much smarter uh, people working for me who worked on the protocols. Uh, Jeff, Hubert, they're probably listening, uh, folks like that. But the, uh, but, but, uh, you know, you invent or, or you deploy certain of these technologies to solve problems in a deterministic way, because uh, you, you only have limited attention span and budgets. And I don't mean that in just, you know, that I don't have infinite funding, nobody does, uh, but there's only so many things you can go after. And so, you know, figure out what you can automate, what you can make as, as fix things and, and solve them uh, comprehensively that you don't have to worry about anymore so that you can spend that same brain power uh, and time on other things that defy easy solutions. So, I, you know, things like, hey, come up with uh, with a standard set of web frameworks and so on that, that solve a bunch of common web security problems uh, to the extent possible, cross-site scripting, uh, CSRF, et cetera. Make those standard and get everybody to use them and now they can innovate around what products they build without having to, to touch some of the underlying uh, componentry and you don't have to train them on it. It just works by default uh, and so on. You know, to the extent you can use, use a managed uh, language, you know, use something that, that's memory safe so that there's just a certain set of things that you don't have to worry about. And then it, it frees you up to spend that same time on the other problems uh, that still exist that you can't automate away uh, in your environment. So, you know, it's not that there aren't some things that you can definitively solve, um, but not all problems uh, can be definitively solved. And so then uh, that's where you want to go spend your time. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that approach. Uh, use leverage computers to automate uh, what can be automated for sure. Yeah. I, I found the, the same benefits, um, you know, back, I guess it was years ago now, back in my time at Mozilla, where we worked to uh, invert the default web framework because we found ourselves doing kind of what you said. It's like, oh, we would would go into assessments and like, hey, you've got um, you don't have a secure cookie flag or you don't have uh, output encoding enabled in this area. And I go, this is silly to spend human time on this. Why don't we just change the framework to turn these on by default? Yep. Uh, and then you know people inherit that. Uh, if if it breaks their code, at least it breaks it when they're writing it and they can fix it instantly yeah. versus later. Yeah, you can, uh, yeah, you can detect deviations from, from normal, right? So you have a standard mm -hmm. configuration and if everybody's doing the thing that you think is safe, uh, then you only have to go and monitor for people who've turned it off or are tweaking those defaults rather than checking that everybody's actually turning them on. Mm -hmm. uh, just make sure that if anybody has to turn them off, that's where you go spend your, spend your time. So the, mm -hmm. you know, I, and it's automation, right? It, it, it's again, this, 
you know, I've, I've learned too many hard times in my career that you go and you, you put in place something, you train a bunch of people to go do a thing manually, uh, repeatedly. And then over the course of years, those people change jobs and roles. And now that thing stops happening because um, it wasn't automated. It wasn't part of the framework. It wasn't just part of the automation that happens. And there wasn't a, you know, sort of like if you didn't build a regression or unit test for it, it's not going to mm -hmm. stay that way. It's the same sort of, sort of thing. So automate the things you can. Um, to cut down on how many things you have to worry about. Um, mm -hmm. Then there's a, a, a set of known good things and you can spend your time on the other stuff uh, that, that are more challenging problems. Mm -hmm. Now what's fascinating about setting default secure for developers in the tech stack is applying that logic and how it almost doesn't work when you think about um, the user base. And so when you, when you think about how humans in general and computers interact uh, and that product experience, um, things get a little bit tricky <laughs> um, because we could set kind of to your point of authentication, we could set it to be very secure by default, like give us your 50 character password yeah, uh, and chaos would break loose. <laughs> um, you yeah. probably encountered a lot of the human computer security conundrums, both at Pinterest and uh, PayPal. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's like, I used to think that, that, it's a hard challenge though. On the one hand, you want to enlist users help uh, in staying secure. And on the other hand, what I don't, I don't know, I think, I think the Chrome team has published some stats that like what, only a few percent of people ever even go and look at the settings inside the web browser mm -hmm. uh, and try to adjust them. So if you're expecting users to go in and, and make meaningful choices about what they want those defaults to be, it's entirely valid to have them there and make them adjustable. Like I, I do think, you know, users need to own their computer and be able to tweak and, and configure and so on. Uh, but you, you need to, to make sure some of those defaults are set right. So we, you know, we took that approach when we did uh, HTTP strict transport security, you know, it was because we couldn't rely on people making good security choices. So we made the computer make it for them and let a, a site, you know, a website set the policy it wanted um, so that we weren't actually relying on users to make really smart security decisions. Um, and that's about setting, setting secure defaults. But then when it, then you're like, what should the warning be when something goes wrong? And the only way to answer that is by doing actual research. I think, uh, mm -hmm what Adrian over at, over at Chrome's, uh, over at, you know, Google, she's published a bunch of great stuff on, on redesigning browser security warnings and so on. And you, you only find out what works through actual experimentation on people uh, and testing how they behave. Uh, you can't figure it out by just designing it and saying, now we've got it, now we've got it right. And when you, you think you've done that, you do, you know, I used to believe in EV certificates until uh, some people proved how silly they are. Um, they don't actually work. Nobody pays attention to them. Uh, and we can prove that through, through actual study. And so, so we stopped believing in that. Um, but it took really, you know, it took, uh, it took research to, to maybe it, it should have been obvious, but it took some research and then you realize that that doesn't actually work. So. Well, we've sure come a long way. I think back to some of our browser warnings before about mixed content in the page. And of course, it makes perfect sense to us. We're like, oh, mixed content. I got to watch out. The images might have been replaced. Blah, blah. But everybody else in the world is like, I don't know. I just want to see the sports scores or I just want to log into my bank. Like, you tell me, should I continue or not? Yeah. And we're making good progress in that. And I always give that analogy. Like, you get in your car and you want to drive. Like, you don't want the car to ask you, like, well, the left brake is, you know, da, 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 da. Are you sure you yeah. want to go? Like, I don't know. I just, please just work or don't go. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, there's interesting lessons to be learned from other domains. I mean, think in the US anyway, uh, was it the late 80s or early 90s when there were mandatory some mandatory seatbelt standards and what there were there were a few years of cars that had the automated seatbelt uh where the shoulder belt was on a rail and you got in the car and you when you closed the door and turned it on the the belt came up and mm -hmm. and so on and people found it so annoying like yes it was on by default uh and you couldn't help but put on your shoulder belt but uh, the problem was that some number of people found that so annoying that they actually disconnected it altogether rather than put up with that security control. So, I, mm -hmm. you know, I think we're always in the business of, you know, trying something but relying on, on some real evidence when we can. Uh, sometimes you can't, like, we're not expecting, like, we don't design crypto systems by trial and error and just figure out if they break. We try to use math and science and, and, and so on to, to figure out that one of them is actually robust. But there's a lot of security problems that don't, don't have that sort of solution to them. Mm -hmm. And the only way to figure it out is by, is by testing it and seeing what, what happens. Totally agree. Totally agree. Now, if you were thinking about the security field, um, or if you're at a company and you're thinking, what should I care about? You may watch the headlines because that's something that you could care about. Um, or maybe you even watch a few movies. And I think if you did, you would walk away and hire a bunch of people to sit in a dark basement and pound the keyboards loudly because that's how you hack. Um, I would posit that you'd be largely misguided. <laughs> yeah. But how do you approach that in some sort of repeatable, verifiable way. And, and by that, I mean, how do you even know what to focus on and what are your threats? They're, they're definitely varied by company and industry and other factors. How do you uh, think about it? Um, What's well, funny, but just on that note, by the way, for movies, I hope Eli Sugarman is successful in coming up with new imagery. Uh, I think he's got the, the program out there willing to fund people to come up with, you know, instead of oh, hackers in hoodies and so on, we're yes. going to come up with some new iconography and, and so mm -hmm. on for, for what computer security is. My, my best wishes to, to that project's success. Yes. Um, I, don't, I don't really wear hoodies, so. Um, the. You know, the, I mean, there's frameworks like the, the NIST cybersecurity framework is a, is a decent start of, of walking through and trying to do some sort of assessment for yourself. I'm a bigger fan. People talk about risk assessment, but I, I tend to think about it in terms of capabilities more often because figuring out underlying risks is really hard. But then in a, in a given business, I think it, it relies on uh, back, to, back to some sort of education and dialogue uh, with the with your executives, if you're if you're a CISO, with your your partners across whatever you know business unit you're in, I'm I'm in in our engineering organization at, at Pinterest. But it's you know talk to your to your legal team and to the finance team and and others, and you figure out like what incidents, um, like walk through some scenarios and say if this happened, what would our reaction be? Would we say? hey, that's absolutely like not allowable, like that under no circumstances could we ever have that happen? Or is this a situation where if that happened, we'd say, hey, we, we tried to make the product more usable for our users and pick a non-security domain. It's like, you're gonna move fast and create all, all sorts of new features. Uh, that comes with some risk that you're gonna cause a bug, some sort of outage and balancing between those two goods of, hey, we wanna move fast and create new features that, that we like and our, and our users like, um, also comes with the risk that you're gonna cause some sort of outage. Uh, balancing those, those two things, like the users would like new cool features, 
and they'd like the service to be up and maybe you don't get it perfect every time, but you try to balance those two competing goods. I think security, you know, you get some hard, you know, must do things. Um, and you can, you can look at common attacks. Like you're an internet business that has IPs and, and other stuff exposed to the internet. There's some amount of just attacks that are going to hit you every single day from sort of the background radiation, uh, if you will, of the internet. If you're not secure against those, if you're running, you know, old unpatched stuff, people are going to find out. There's lots of, uh, and so on. So there's a certain set of basic practices that I think you can assume uh, you have to do because they're practically guaranteed to result uh, in you getting owned uh, if you don't do them. And then beyond that, it's a, uh, who do we think our attackers are? What do they want? You know, like at my last job, we had billions and billions and billions of dollars of, of lots of people's money and our own money. Um, you know, moving money around uh, like attracts a certain kind of attacker. Uh, that's not my current role. We're not moving. That's not our, you know, we're, not a, we're not moving money around and, and doing payments. So we're not attracting those same sorts of attackers. So understanding what, what there's some generic internet adversary and then there's who's actually interested in us, what do they want, how would they monetize it, um, and thinking about all of those and, and running through scenarios on it. I think, I, like I said, the NIST cybersecurity firm, it's a good start to just think comprehensively about all the things you should be doing, all the different domains of security that may not be top of mind. Maybe you don't think that much about internal access control, or maybe you don't think about, I don't know, Things that, that are easy to forget is like device uh, destruction when, when you, or were you doing full disk encryption on all your laptops? Like that's a pretty common scenario that can, you can sort of easily forget about or something. Um, so having a good comprehensive guide like that is, is a good practice to walk through. Yeah, this frameworks um, are a really nice starting spot. I, I agree completely. One thing I found that's a, an interesting addition to them <clears throat> is uh, an executive uh, tour uh, where you discuss with them sort of like, what would be the disaster scenario in your mind? Like what, yeah. what can't happen? Yep. Uh, it, it, it draws some really interesting leaps between the technical controls we know we need to have and then the business processes and how they map together. I've always found it to be really good firepower. Like, well, you know, I really wanted to upgrade the security of this system, you know, design, et cetera. And maybe you don't have as much uh, firepower for that on its own. But then you say, and by the way, it ties to these core critical systems that we've just determined are, you know, must not happen uh, events. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was my first, that was literally my first, uh, my first month on the job and on an ongoing mm -hmm. basis was doing those interviews and saying, what keeps you up at night? What are the things that yeah. you, that you're worried about either as scenarios or things that you don't know enough about um, how well we're doing something. And so sometimes you know, sometimes, like I said, my job is just is education. Mm -hmm. You you find either a and you, and you pick your spots. You say, hey, here's you mentioned like things in the news. Like I use those as as an opportunity to have a conversation with my with my colleagues. When when something happens in the news, you you write up a summary on could that have impacted us? Are we exposed to that? Or are we not? Um, either of those is is actually okay. It's either one. Here's an opportunity for us to go and improve, or alternately that wouldn't have impacted us. Here's why it doesn't happen by accident. We, we do the following things and now that's not an issue for us. So, so that's great news. You may have been wondering if this was an issue for us and it turns out it's not, which is also a great story to be able to tell. So. Yeah. As security people, we often think about the negatives and the potential bad things. Give yourself credit when you do things well, just like you said, like 
we are all the work we did made us not vulnerable to that headline. So our name is not going to be up there. Yeah. And you don't get the, you don't get the chance to talk about that very often. You know, we, we had an instant recently where somebody tried to just made a mistake and tried to accidentally shut down a whole bunch of systems. Um, just to, uh, they were, they were doing some maintenance and tried to shut down some things and we had put in place the security controls that they didn't have the permission to shut things down. And so it was a nice opportunity to, to say, Hey, look, uh, that's a big win where because we put in some security controls, we avoided an, even just an, a mistake, you know, an accident. Mm -hmm. um, but it could have been really bad. But because we did the right thing and put in some, some good controls there, uh, we didn't have that incident. Hooray. You don't get that, that chance very often. So uh, tout it when you can. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Uh, so Andy, one of the things I like to um, always end on in these discussions is a little bit of feedback to the the next potential generation of uh, security practitioners, maybe even CISOs. Uh, so what would you say? What would you say to a student uh, who is thinking about entering the field of security or someone who's in it or, and maybe wants to be a, a CISO one day? Sure. Um, yeah, I get asked this question a lot. Um, I would say for the, for, the, for the more junior person, like be excellent at something, have a really strong foundation in something be a be it a really good uh, software engineer be it a really good system administrator like understand something really deep uh and really well in one domain um of, of something technical not even purely security and because those are some of the foundational skills i think are useful uh to bootstrap on top of they give you this conceptual underpinning uh for understanding things of course i say that you know being a uh, a student of a, I've got a liberal arts degree uh, proudly from the University of Chicago. And that's, you know, it's all about this like common core foundation that everybody then builds on top of. So maybe I, maybe they trained me too well. Um, but I, you know, it's have, have one or two things you feel that you're really an expert in, that you're really, really solid in. Because um, that, that's a, that's a point of strength, something that you can just leverage to learn other things and conceptualize them and, and so on. Um, and, and so that's my, that's my my first bit of things for how to get started and how to how to build yourself up. I think as you, when we you know every every CISO and senior security person I talk to, uh, relates that like at some point in your career you start pivoting from from many things being a technical problem into being an organizational um, and people not problem but. You know, it's got more of those elements to it. It becomes coordinating multiple people to work on something. A problem is bigger than you can solve all by yourself. It's not a, a technical thing that you just need this one person to go do this one thing. It's about understanding organizations and dynamics and systems and how people work together. How do you motivate people uh, and so on. And so it's like, if you find that you're, you're in the purely technical space, um, one of the best advice I ever got, and it was actually given to me to give to somebody else, but it was, you know, like as engineers, we often are really uh, concerned about being right. Um, and the advice was, you know, you have to decide whether you want to be right or whether you want to be effective. Uh, and because they're not always the same thing. And so, you know, having your idea be the right one or whatever um, uh, is not the same as solving the problem and getting stuff done. And that involves working with other people, collaborating. And so, you know, at some point, if you want to be a leader and, and advance in that way, it becomes about learning how to work with other people effectively uh, to solve problems. Very well said, very well said. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time today. 
Uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there. I know we could talk uh, hours upon hours uh, on security and all these things, but this was great. Really appreciate your time and sharing your insights with the world. Um, and uh, you know, good luck out there, everyone. It's it's a wild world. It's a wild place. <laughs> and next time we'll all you know we'll all actually meet at Big Basin instead of on on video or something. You know, back when uh, when we can. So that'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs>